one of the interesting things in, you know, one of the last uh, part of this mythos of the color guard is as Edwards is leaving and he only had 27 men left with him at this point. You know, again, I said 99 made it through the battle, Um, but you know, it's so confusing guys ended up with different regiments, whatever he has the last 27 men under his command. He's pulling them back. And as he's looking on this barricade, he sees a private holding the colors. Um, and the 24th only had a national set of colors. They didn't have a state or a regimental color there. They only had national colors. And this private is slumped on the back of the, uh, the back of the fence rail, holding the colors. And Edwards didn't know who he was. So he's a mystery to this day, but Edwards grabs the colors and they retreat back through town to cemetery Hill. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, kind of the, you know, last Rav, you know, something like six or seven guys gave their lives defending the colors in the 24th. And if you've never seen a picture uh, you can easily find one online, but I mean, the, the colors are just completely shot to pieces during the fighting. Hello, and welcome to the Civil War Regiments podcast. Today's episode is dedicated to the upcoming 159th anniversary of the Battle of Gettysburg. We will be discussing the 24th Michigan Infantry of the Iron Brigade and their involvement in the battle with historian Andrew Roscoe. Andrew is a lieutenant commander in the United States Navy Reserve and he has a Master's of Arts in Military History for Norwich University. He is one of the founders of Tuber Historic Events, a group for reenactors in Michigan, Kentucky, and West Virginia. Andrew, along with William Eichler, is also a producer and co-host of the popular web and YouTube series, Civil War Digital Digest. Andrew has written several articles for Gettysburg Magazine and other publications, and he is also a professional airline pilot. I am honored to have Andrew on the show and to deep dive into one of the most famous regiments involved in the Battle of Gettysburg. Without further ado, I'd like to welcome our special guest tonight, Andrew Roscoe. Andrew, welcome. Wow, thank you for having me. Oh, thank you so much, man. And and uh, this was a, a last minute uh, put together here uh, for the upcoming uh, anniversary, especially for Gettysburg. So I, uh, I appreciate uh, your flexibility. Uh, um, in a short notice for this. <laughs> oh, not at all. Uh, you know, I, you know, we're here to talk about the 24th Michigan tonight. And it's one of those things that it's just inseparable every year, July 1st and right around there in the lead up to it just becomes always a reminder to me about this unit, just because, you know, it's always connected to that day. So, so much that it ends up just, you know, uh, the week before it always ends up being something where I'm look, looking at something for the 24th anyway. So this was a, just a good way to get started with that. Oh, awesome. And, and that's my hope too. Uh, a lot of people are going to be uh, traveling to Gettysburg right now and, and uh, something good to listen to on the, on the road up there. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this would be great. And, uh, and I, likewise, man, uh, ever since uh, I got into Gettysburg, I, June and July can't go by without me acknowledging various days and various weeks in that time. Um, it, I just, I get in the mindset every year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's hard. But, but man, yeah. So thanks again. Thanks again for coming on. And uh, yeah, for the, for this season so far, you know, um, we've just done a few episodes uh, for this new season, but, uh, but I always like to begin with a little background on yourself, uh, the guest and, and uh, how you uh, found your interest in, in Civil War history. And um, even I know, I know yourself and many of my other guests have been living historians too, reenactors. 
So um, how did it all begin for you? So for me, uh, I am young enough that for me, it was the movie Gettysburg. Oh, which yeah. is funny oh, yeah. because I know plenty of people that were reenactors or small uh, actors in the movie itself. So, you know, it kind of dates me for that. You know, I was about five or six when the movie came out and, you know, I got hooked on the civil war right away, but early on I started to figure out, you know, you know, I love the Chamberlain story and Pickett's charge, but the first day story really caught me. And of course, you know, one of the things you see is Iron Brigade forward and, you know, the whole scene where Reynolds dies, which is not terribly historically accurate, but a beautiful scene in the movie. And I was just like, who are these Iron Brigade guys? Because they look different. You could just tell there's something different about them. And uh, I remember within the next year or two going to a local event here at Greenfield Village in the Detroit area where I'm born and raised. And there were guys there wearing that uniform and they were uh, reenactors from the 24th Michigan. And I remember talking to them and, you know, just becoming really fascinated with this unit. Um, and as I grew up, you know, my parents, uh, my dad liked history. My mom learned to love history. And, uh, you know, I remember reading the American heritage book on the civil war where they had oh, the, yeah. You know, I love the maps in there and, so you know, just some really great features in there. I mean, they're also written by Bruce Cadden, which I discovered later in life. And, you know, it's a special thing because he's from Michigan and a great author from that period. Um, You know, but for me, it's really changed my life because, I, you know, I've had other other things I've become interested in at various points in my life. But the Civil War has just always been there uh, to the point that, you know, I became a professional naval officer. I did 11 years active duty with the Navy. and you know, my love of the civil war gave me the desire to serve, gave me the love mm. of the country and the upholding the Republic. And, uh, you know, so that's just been, it's really shaped my life to a huge degree, you know, seeing this movie when I was five years old. Oh yeah. And, uh, you know, it is, it's incredible and uh, ironic to think that so many of us have the same exact stories of how we got involved in this. And I'm a, I'm a child of the Gettysburg movie too. <laughs> and that scene. Yeah. I remember even, you know, when I was young watching that scene, um, that stuck, I, you know, I, I grew up just like rewinding and fast forwarding to all my favorite battle segments in that movie. <laughs> that was definitely one of them. But I remember as I learned more about the battle of Gettysburg, I was like, wait a minute. Like they really miss out a lot on the first day in that movie because oh. like they took that one little clip and they show Reynolds getting shot and also the next thing you know like the lines are collapsing it's a big retreat but I'm like man they don't even like show Cemetery Hill or like you know <laughs> like, I, you know I mean I'm I am a firm believer that the first day does not get nearly enough attention it does I mean sacrifice of the first core and the eleventh core to buy time is just. I mean, it's heartbreaking because, I mean, the first core suffers almost two thirds casualties in the, you know, or of mm -hmm. the guys that are there. I mean, it's, it's brutal. And when you realize that when they made that movie, it was the B crew that did all the first day scenes. It wasn't even <laughs> like the A crew because the A crew was filming the little round top stuff and all the camp oh, yeah. scenes and stuff. The first, the first day stuff was like, eh, hey, we'll send these guys out and whatever they get, they get, you know, <laughs> that's how <laughs> unimportant it was to the Oh yeah, for sure. And uh, and one other little tidbit for that is, you know, everyone always thinks like Buford's cavalry had this epic, you know, stand on McPherson's Ridge and not taking away, you know, the importance of what they did there, but like their casualties 
are much smaller than they show in the movie. <laughs> I, I want to say that Buford's division, the, the, the two brigades that day, because Merritt's third uh, reserve yeah. cavalry brigade wasn't there. But I want to say that those two only suffered something like 75 casualties that day. Uh, yeah, you're not far off. I, I really, I think, yeah, you're right. It's in that ballpark. But, and <laughs> Yeah, but I mean, like, what they did was epic, but not because it was some last stand, but it was because it was this masterful tactical defense in depth that started like five, six miles out from the battlefield. And they just kept forcing the lead Confederate brigades to deploy time after time. And, you know, you and I as reenactors can really appreciate it takes a long time for a battalion. Meanwhile, a whole brigade to deploy from marching formation to a battle formation. And then as soon as they did that, the cavalry could just mount up and go back to the next ridgeline and force them to do the <laughs> yes. whole thing all over again. You know? Oh Yeah. Yeah, like a orderly withdrawal going on. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean it was incredibly well executed, but not at all what showed in the movie or really yeah. even the book. And I'll say too, I I will say that uh, my copy of uh, Killer Angels, that you know the Pulitzer Prize winning novel that it's based on, is sadly abused over. I've usually read it about twice a year since I was about eight. So. Oh, oh, I agree on that, too. And I, I will say um, I watched the movie first and read the book, but it's one of the few books that I mean, they did a good job. The movie did a good job keeping it true to the book, because like you can read the book and I feel like I'm watching the movie. <laughs> yes. Yeah, <laughs> they did a good job. But uh, but, you know, of course, we're here today to talk about uh, the Iron Brigade's involvement in Gettysburg, specifically the 24th Michigan. And and in a way. You know, we're at a point uh, where the Iron Brigade does get a lot of attention. It does get a lot of love. And, and like you said, um, it gets to the point where sometimes people think the first day, when people think first day, they usually only think about either Buford, Reynolds, and the Iron Brigade, and not much else sometimes. Like, you know, and, and the other not- brigade, First Corps, and the other brigades in the 11th Corps, you know, a lot of they all did equal fighting, but just not all of them get attention. And I will say, um, you know, the 11th Corps was in an incredibly awful position. I mean, they, they were trying to cover way too much ground with too few people. And they just, they didn't have a good shot. Like they, they weren't set up for success at all. And there are certain brigades there, especially the ones uh, from Schertz's division more to the East or I'm sorry, mm-hmm. to the West fighting near uh, Robinson's guys in the first corps yeah. did a fantastic job. But really when you look at it, you know, part of it too is Howard, who is the 11th Corps commander, but also the commander on the field, smeared the first corps to protect his own reputation, mostly as a result of him violating orders at Chancellorsville and oh, lucky yeah. to not have been court-martialed for that. But, <laughs> you know, it's sad too because Meade replaced uh, the first corps commander, uh, Doubleday, who took over, and I'm not a firm believer Doubleday is a great general or anything, but he did a serviceable job on July 1st, and the first corps fought magnificently. You know, uh, people don't really talk about the fight that Robinson's division does up on the Mummusburg Road. Oh, Baxter, yeah. you know, Paul's brigade had six or seven commanders during that fighting because everyone kept getting wounded, uh, you know, and they still held together. Um you know, and then the Stones Brigade, the Bucktail Brigade, what they did along, you know, they're in this terrible angle right on the north end of McPherson's Ridge, and they just got caught in a crossfire. And they take pretty comparable casualties to the first to the Iron Brigade, too. You know, oh, yeah. But, 
but you know, at the end of the day, the iron brigade is the one with all the press attention, but uh, you know, uh, but they also suffered something like 67, 68% casualties. So, yeah. Oh yeah. No, it's staggering. Um, it's depressing to look if, when you look at the casualty list of the first day and specifically the iron brigade and the first corps, it's staggering. And we're going to dive into all this, but it's really, um, um, it's incredible. I mean, it's, uh, I remember, uh, someone just mentioned this the other day, how, uh, uh, I think the Ken Burns documentary just makes, a uh, passing comment about the first day, like compared to the, <laughs> yeah. the third day of the battle of Gettysburg, the first day was just a minor skirmish, but, but like, there was like something like seven or 8,000 casualties or more. <laughs> Correct. Yeah. There was quite a few and you know, it's, I will say that there are several books that have come out in the last couple of years, last 20 years. Um, Fans' book in particular, um, you know, he's done a great job talking about various aspects of the battle, but his view, uh, his discussion of the first day's fighting is actually a really good breakdown of it. Um, Oh, yeah. And I like, too, that he doesn't, you know, he makes the point. Reynolds makes some mistakes. Doubleday makes some mistakes. Howard certainly makes some mistakes. You know, it's not just that these guys did wonderfully. And the Confederates made some mistakes, too. You know, Lee really should have had a much mm. more complete victory considering how, you know, he had two complete corps on the field. Or oh, yeah. Five divisions of, you know, of the corps. And he only used four of the divisions and attacked piecemeal. If he had pushed all four in at once, it would have been very over very quickly, you know. Oh, yeah. It's it's a miracle, really. I mean, uh, it, like how close it actually still could have ended for the for the union on that first day. I mean, it and oh. and by golly, I mean, they they put up the best resistance they could all the way to Cemetery Hill. And so it's impressive. It is. Well, all right. Well, to uh, to dive into things here. Um, so before we really deep dive further into Gettysburg, um, in regards to the 24th Michigan that we're talking about today, uh, uh, can you highlight or recap um, maybe the, the mustering in of the regiment and what they did uh, leading up to Gettysburg? How they Sure. Yeah. Well, I'll say, so I did my master's thesis on the 24th Michigan, and I particularly looked, looked at their action at Gettysburg, but I used the scope of um, – how they had such an impressive because it's really their combat debut. It's their first actual fight mm-hmm. that they're in. And I use the scope of what factors went into it. And part of it is the creation of the regiment. It's incredibly, it's a great story. So Detroit had committed some troops to the war, but they'd been individual companies and regiments. They had never raised a regiment. Mm-hmm. When Lincoln gave his call for troops in the summer of 1862, he asked for, I think, three or 500,000 additional troops, Michigan was assigned to raise six more regiments of troops. Uh, For this, there was a war meeting in Detroit. um, And it was, this war meeting was, you know, hey, to encourage recruitment. Supposedly there were agents who crossed the river from Canada who were Confederate sympathizers. Whether or not that's true, that's widely reported, but Either way, there was a riot, a uh, counter riot to the war rally. And it actually broke up the speaker stand. You know, this included like Lewis Cass, who was one of the territorial governors in Michigan. He had been secretary of war, senator. He was one of the kind of like the grand old man of Michigan and a Democrat. He's a war Democrat now. Um, But it actually got to the point that the Wayne County Sheriff 
a guy named Mark Flanagan, who becomes Lieutenant Colonel of the 24th. Actually, him and a deputy have to hold back the crowd with revolvers on the steps of a hotel. It's just incredibly, and like Detroit is now under this cloud of, you know, they're disloyal. They can't, they're not raising troops. They won't raise, a, you know, every other major city had raised regiments for the war and Detroit had it. So a delegation of, city, of leading fathers from the city went up to the governor and they requested permission to raise an extra regiment. So instead of the six that are that were called for, Michigan raised seven. Uh, mm. Supposedly, the governor Austin Blair originally wasn't going to allow this, but eventually he uh, apparently was. The story is that he was uh, persuaded by his wife that it was a sound political move. Uh, <laughs> either way, he uh, he authorized the uh, he authorized the raising of the regiment, and within a month it had filled up. It was incredibly fast. The cool thing about how it was raised, though, is because it became such a pride point, like the, the 24th Michigan is the Detroit and Wayne County Regiment. Um, a whole bunch of businessmen in the area donated money to this fund, and the fund was to basically subsidize the soldiers' pay. You know, $13 a month for a private is actually not really good by Civil War standards. It's, it's, you know, it's much under what a day laborer made. And so because now a lot of families were getting 20 to $30 a month on top of their pay from this fund that was donated by businessmen. Suddenly a lot of more older and middle-class people that are established with families uh, joined the regiment. So instead of the average age of like 25, 26, that are most civil war regiments, the 24th Michigan runs a little older. They're about 28 to 29 on average. Wow. Yeah. And I mean, to the point too, that it's not, okay, they're older, but you're talking about a much more middle-class look. You're talking a lot more, less farm laborers, a lot more farmers. Uh, you have physicians that are privates. Like they're not the doctors for the regiment. They are <laughs> just in the ranks. Lawyers, the uh, Detroit Free Press, uh, they, they're at um, pretty much the whole staff walked off the job and joined the regiment. Uh, it's a it's a much it's just a very interesting uh, group of people, and uh, their colonel is a really interesting guy. He's named Henry Morrow. He's originally from Warrenton, Virginia. Um, he had served with the Washington and District of Columbia Regiment during the Mexican War. He rose to the rank of sergeant, and then clerked for Lewis Cass. Excuse me, when he was a senator, and Cass convinced him to move back to Detroit. Uh, Morrow became a lawyer, and at the time he was. The uh, he was the judge of a recorder's court in Michigan, which is a it's a low level civil trial, but it was relatively it was a city court. Um, and he's the one who undertook raising the regiment. And Morrow turns out to be one of the most fantastic citizen soldiers in the whole war. Uh, at, actually, at the end of the war, he was the colonel of the twenty fourth his entire existence. But for large chunks of 1864 and 1865, he's a brevet brigadier general commanding various brigades and is actually the last uh, brigade commander of the Iron Brigade in 65. Uh, but he ends up as a lieutenant colonel and then later a colonel in the regular army after the war. He was so good, he was offered a commission in the regular army with the reorganization in 1866. And that's what he did the rest of his life. He was a professional soldier. And and uh, for, for those of you listening, uh, Henry Morrow, if you look up a picture of him, um, he does favor uh, strong Vincent in the way he has those big mutton chop yes. sides, and uh, there must be something about those. I mean, because both those guys are equally uh, badass in my book. And oh, yeah. Uh, but Henry Morrow has always uh, uh, fascinated me as far as 
Um, I, I love, I, I'm partial to almost every colonel in the Iron Brigade. I, you know, they, they all have their cool stories, but, but Harry Morrow is definitely uh, somebody to look into. Yes. And when we get to actually Gettysburg, there's a, I have a paper that's out there that I, I maintain that he actually briefly commanded uh, the Iron Brigade on July 1st after the wounding of their brigadier general. Uh, it looks like most likely him and the senior surviving staff officer in the brigade took command oh, yeah. of the brigade because the senior colonel essentially refused to take command of the brigade. Mm. So uh, Morrow's an interesting guy, though. He was a, a favorite of Joe Hooker, which, I mean, Hooker's a guy that gets <laughs> way not enough credit anyway as, be, as oh. you know, oh, he was a drunk, which he wasn't a drunk. And, you know, oh, he <laughs> lost Chancellorsville, but... Hooker was actually an incredibly skilled administrator and battlefield commander, and he really liked Hooker. Or, excuse me, he really liked Morrow. Recommended mm-hmm. him for Brigadier General in the uh, spring of 1863, which is funny because Morrow never actually got the full promotion. He was a brevet, but never got the actual substantial promotion. So, Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, so after this very tumultuous mustering in, the regiment um, uh, goes down to – Washington in September of 1862, and they arrive in the city right before the Antietam campaign. And a lot of other units that showed up in this point got attached to the army. I think of the 17th Michigan in particular, who uh, mustered in about the same time as them. They, the 17th Michigan joins the ninth Corps and fights at Fox's gap as a brand new rookie regiment, but the 24th doesn't do it. They get put into the Washington defenses uh, they bring in a very senior because Morrow as the colonel and Flanagan, the sheriff as lieutenant colonel, are pretty much, you know, they're they're unskilled, they're unexperienced. They brought in a uh, major who had been with the Seventh Michigan, so he's very experienced officer, and was responsible for drilling them. Uh, so they spent their first year in service or the first month uh, in Washington just drilling until October of 1862, where they're ordered to join the Iron Brigade. So they, uh, they, you know, marched, marched through uh, Turner's Gap where the Iron Brigade had fought there, which was still filled with bodies and debris of battle. Um, and then ended up joining the brigade on October 19th, 1862, which uh, the Regimental Historian, the 24th says that, you know, they got a really cold reception from the Iron Brigade. You know, they came in there thinking, hey, you know, the, the original four regiments of the Iron Brigade, the 2nd, 6th, and 7th Wisconsin, 19th Indiana, we're only mustering like 900 guys between all four regiments at this point. And this yeah. thousand man regiment shows up and they expect it to be cheered of, Oh, Hey, we're joining the brigade, keeping yeah. the Western character. And the iron brigade wanted nothing to do with these guys. Um, so was, but uh, uh, to go back a little bit, was there, was it just random uh, that they got selected to join the iron brigade or was it because they were Western that they were added or. So John Gibbon, who is the second commander of the Iron Brigade and the one that's, you know, created their reputation, uh, he at some point in the fall of 62 asked George McClellan for uh, a lot of regiments or brigades that only had four regiments were getting a fifth regiment during this period. Most of the original brigades in the Army of the Potomac only had four uh, regiments. Mm-hmm. And he specifically asked for a Western brigade. Um whether or not that, you know, however that came to be, you know, if McClellan ever told the army staff that, I don't know. But uh, originally they apparently were intended for the 12th Corps, but got redirected to the 1st Corps and joined the Iron Brigade. So, And, uh, and I, I see exactly what you mean, though, uh, when I, when any new group of men, so whether they're from the same state or not, or, you know, uh, 
they're going to be looked down on compared to the veterans in those early days like that. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, interestingly, so they, um, Morrow actually takes over the brigade shortly after because John Gibbon is promoted to division command and Morrow is the senior colonel uh, up until uh, the colonel of the 6th Wisconsin returns from a wound and takes over. And then later, the colonel of the 19th Indiana, who's been promoted to general, take uh, Solomon Meredith takes over the brigade. But they go into the Battle of Fredericksburg, still the new guys. There's still no one trusts them. And uh, two days before the battle, the Iron Brigade is crossing a pontoon bridge over the Rappahannock River when they come under fire. And uh, the word goes through the ranks. Morrow tells them, careful, boys, those Wisconsin fellows are watching you. You know, kind of just making the point, hey, guys, you know, we got a reputation to earn. And at the Battle of Fredericksburg, they don't actually fight there. They're not actually engaged in any way. But they're, the Iron Brigade is supporting the 2nd United States sharpshooters, who are still part of the 1st Corps at this point, uh, clearing out a copse of trees. And the, and the 24th is in their immediate supports. Well, they're out in the middle of this open field, and they start getting caught in this crossfire of artillery. And very early on in this, uh, a soldier, I believe it's Lewis Hattie, gets his head taken off. And he's a really popular guy. The word starts going up and down the ranks that, you know, and their shells are coming in left and right around the regiment and they're starting to to waver. Morrow comes in front of the regiment, halts the regiment because they've been moving forward, halts them, opens ranks. So the second rank, you know, takes its four paces to the rear and proceeds to go through the manual of arms with them. (laughs) You know, the basic drill of a soldier, right? So they're Uh sitting there going through the manual of arms, the whole thing. And suddenly these guys just lock in because all these guys had spent hours every day going through this stuff. I mean, you could appreciate this. We've done this as reenactors as, you know, and, and suddenly they stop, like, even though they're under fire and taking casualties, they stop They're you know, that like they, they lock in, they're mentally there the quavering stops. He closes ranks and they keep moving forward. Wow. And the rest of the iron brigade is a couple hundred yards to the rear watching this. And basically after this, the rest of the, I mean, the rest of the Iron Brigade is like, nope, they they belong. They're, <laughs> they're part of the club, guys, you know. Uh, and it's really no, this. That's uh, incredible, yeah. <laughs> uh, and one of the people who actually dies in this exchange is um, a guy named John Lidigat, who his nephew is this guy you may have heard of. He uh, named Henry Ford. He owned this small auto company that's kind of on yeah. my way. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, Ford, Ford's two uncles, his maternal uncles, both served in the 24th. One was killed wow. in action Fredericksburg. The other one served through the rest of the war. So, um, wow. Uh, That's awesome. Yeah. So they spent the winter of 1862, really, uh, 62, 63. You know, this is really the nadar of the army of, of the Potomac, right? You know, a lot of people call this like the army, uh, the Valley Forge of the civil war, you know, mm-hmm. Burnside's administration just falls apart completely. Guys are deserting left, right, and center. The army's not being taken care of. They're not getting fed. They're not getting clothed. Um, and then Hooker comes in, and everything starts to change. This is where core badges come in. Butterfield is the chief of staff. Him and Hooker together restore morale in the army. They get deserters back. And Morrow is a big part of this. He really goes and purges his officer corps. You know, a lot of the uh, a lot of the guys who become officers in the Civil War is just based on their ability to get people to a unit, right? You're mm-hmm. you're a big enough guy in your town, you're important enough that people will join up to be with you. But that has no bearing on who you are as a soldier. <laughs> and in the 
that winter, Morrow forces out five of his captains and I think another four lieutenants, as well as a couple staff officers. Basically, uh, you know, somewhere like 10 to 11 officers get forced out, whether they decide to resign on their own, uh, two are just straight out dismissed from service. Wow. And Morrow takes the opportunity to take NCOs, promote them, and fill them in as his new lieutenants. And so the officer corps of the regiment going into 1863 is incredibly strong. Um, he was a firm believer. He, you know, he had his men, uh, they did drill every day with packs on, which was unusual, actually. A lot of guys didn't only would do that occasionally. The 24th did all their drill with packs on. He had them on the marksmanship range, which not every unit did. Uh, and he would divide the regiment in half into wings and he would take, um, he would take the wings and have them do war games against each other. Just, you know, some very innovative training for the civil war, just not rote drill. He actually had them really work hard. Um, so did, uh, um, for the men, um, did they see, uh, Morrow's decisions like this and, and strict, uh, drill, like, uh, did they see him as a harsh man or were they inspired by him? Um, and that eagerness to learn to be a professional soldier. I think they all recognized Morrow. Morrow was a hard man, but he was a fair, tough, competent commander. And I think they all like that. But, oh, you yeah. know, Morrow really set the tone for the regiment when he raised it. You know, he, he invited, he said, I am going into the field. I will share all of the burdens and all of the mm -hmm. sorrows you have. And I invite you to join me. And I, as far as I can tell, he kept that tone through the tenure of his command. Uh, you know, he's a pretty down earth guy. I like one of the pictures of him with his, uh, he's wearing, you know, he gets a, a studio photo taken instead of being in incredibly natty uniform. He's got his coat buttoned open and he has a oh, civilian yeah. checkered shirt on underneath yeah. it. Yeah. You know, like he's, he's kind of a down to earth guy from what I can tell. Um, oh yeah. I love, I love that image too. And, and uh, those, and I think those are the guys that we're all uh, drawn to uh, all our favorite leaders from that era. Um, they all have similar stories. They're, they're, they're tough guys, but they also know how to respect their men and how to be fair. And, and they prove themselves on the battlefield. <laughs> well, and you know, in his case, I think it helps too, that he had been an enlisted man. He had served in Mexico as a, as a, you know, NCO as a private and NCO. So he, I think he knew what the other side of that coin was. So, um, but he built a very close regiment, which, um, you know, really plays into going into 63. Uh, their first, you know, the first corps during the Chancellorsville campaign aren't with the main army for most of the fighting. They're actually part of a diversion at Fredericksburg. And mm. part of this is the Iron Brigade got selected to lead a, a, to put a bridge over the river. Eventually there was enough Confederate, there's a very strong Confederate picket uh, opposing them and got to the point that the brigade commander decide or the division commander excuse me james wadsworth decided to put across the 24th michigan and the 6th wisconsin in an amphibious assault it's very you know very reminiscent of if you think of um you know bridge too far when um julian cook's battalion crosses the river they're pouring into the pontoon broats and they're rowing across the river under fire the whole time uh wadsworth's in one of the boats with them and uh you know Rufus Dawes of the 6th Wisconsin talks about how the two regiments raced each other, you know, the veterans and the new guys. And <laughs> even though he's like, oh, well, the 6th Wisconsin really won. But to be honest, we both got there at the same time. <laughs> uh, 
Oh, that's great. Got to love a uh, friendly rivalry there. Yes. You know, and it's great to see the brigade too, you know, at this point, Oh, it's a friendly rivalry and not, Oh, we hate these new guys. Mm-hmm. You know? Um, but yeah, so they're at the, the end part of the battle of Chancellorsville, but they're all the way out on the right flank. Uh, actually. So interestingly, when hooker was, you know, hooker was concussed during the battle. And again, something people don't really talk about. And I think in this day where we have a much better idea of what, concussions due to people you know uh hooker spent the afternoon of may 3rd still commanding the army but you know in the middle of this bad concussion and he pretty much had very brief moments of lucidity where he would realize there was a crisis and assign someone he trusted to it at one point uh henry hunt the federal artillery commander is not on the battlefield so he assigns uh, Charles Wainwright, who is his old division artillery chief and currently the first corps artillery chief to take over all the artillery in the army because he trusted him. Well, similarly, mm-hmm. he actually assigned Morrow to take a couple regiments and go to all the way to the right flank and secure the flank. And because he had, he really liked Morrow is, you know, I don't want to say protege, but you know, he really had affinity for this guy. And that was one of those orders he gave in those moments of lucidity and kind of showed what he thought of Morrow and what he thought of the 24th. He was, he really highly rated the 24th Michigan. So. Well, um, and like you said earlier, um, Hooker is, um, he gets the shaft a lot and, but he, he was responsible for a lot of good and he made a lot of good decisions, but, and one of my favorites is him instituting the core badge system uh, along with Dan Butterfield. <laughs> yes. Um, he was definitely, uh, he definitely boosted morale for a much needed uh, morale boost in the Union Army at that time. Yes. Um, all of that helped. Uh, I mean, going into the Gettysburg campaign, because um, uh, we know when, you, when, you, when you're an army like that has been on the losing end for so long, stuff like that boosts morale, I'm sure. Absolutely. And I think that's really borne out by um, later in the war when they became the 4th Division, 5th Corps, and rightfully should have been wearing uh, green Maltese crosses. Mm-hmm. Um, the original the original 24th guys continued to wear red circles all the way through the end of the war. Um, when they mustered out, there was about two to 300 guys in the original regiment still with them. And they had actually been filled up with draftees over time, so they were eight or 900 guys when they mustered out. Excuse me. But... Only the guys who had served with the first corps were still allowed to wear red circles, but they all still had them. Oh, wow. Yeah. I love that. Um, I love hearing about that. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, but uh, on that same um, kind of note of talking about uniforms, almost uh, when the 24th, uh, now that they've joined the iron brigade, you know, uh, of course, you know, the hardy hats and everything known in the appearance of the iron brigade, the 24th being a new addition, uh, when they joined or by the Gettysburg campaign, do they look just like all the other regiments? Uh, did they get issued those same hardy hats? So that's actually a really great question because yes, they have them at Gettysburg, but it's incredibly new. They got them in the early part of June, 1863. Really? So they put hardy hats on order as soon as they joined the brigade, because of course all the other regiments had them. Mm-hmm. Uh, Morrow put them on request, but for whatever reason, there was a snafu in the quartermaster's office and they kept not getting them. And it wasn't <laughs> until like June 3rd or 7th of 63 that they finally got issued hardy hats. Wow. Um, in terms of the rest of the, you know, the, the classic iron brigade uniform is really a summer of 62 thing. You know, very few, mm-hmm. if any people have gators still going into Gettysburg, 
the second Wisconsin made a really valiant attempt to keep dark blue trousers, even after Antietam. You know, those were still in circulation and they still tried to keep them issued. Uh, there's an anecdote about guys in the sixth Wisconsin who got a bale of dark blue trading uh, ba- their bale of trousers for the second for light blue trousers. So the second could try to stay all in dark blue. Um, but, you know, the 24th w- had a pretty good mix of frock coats, sack coats, light blue trousers. They would have all had light blue trousers. And their hardy hats probably were on dress. They probably didn't have a lot of brass on them because they never had that fully dressed hardy hat like Gibbon instituted for the brigade originally. So, Wow, yeah, that's something to consider because um, I, I believe uh, most of the group photos in existence of the Iron Brigade and the various regiments are all like fall 1862. Yes. <laughs> and there's, I don't know if there is, there is maybe one group shot of the 24th Michigan, and that's, um, it's probably, if it's them, it's at Lincoln's funeral in 1865 where they're the honor guard there. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. But it's a photo taken from a, like a cupola of a building behind them. So you can see that there's a whole bunch of guys wearing hardy hats, but you don't know for sure who it is. But gotcha. yeah, but yeah, yeah like uh, those famous photos of the second, seventh, sixth Wisconsin, a lot of those were taken between uh, right before the Antietam campaign. Mm-hmm. And so shows them, you know, it, kind of in campaign mode. But yeah, in the 62, there's not really like a good group shot of the 24th to show what they look like, unfortunately. And um, as you said, you know, by mid-war, you know, they're not going to be wearing these gaiters, probably not wearing a lot of the hat dressing. But unfortunately, uh, uh, as part of their iconic uh, name and and legacy, it's like everyone just always assumes that they had all frock coats, all gaiters, all feathers in their hats, you know, because you see it in the paintings, you see it in the movie and, and, uh, uh, you know, I, maybe it's overblown, but it's just that's the way people picture them. <laughs> uh, you know what? So when I joined reenacting, I joined the 24th Michigan, and that was a fight even in the unit then because we had enough guys that had done the research and pulled ordinance. For, you know, the uh, quartermaster returns like, hey, guys, they didn't have this stuff. Let's do it right, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. But, uh, yeah, so that's what that's what they're looking like when they go into Gettysburg. Um they go into Gettysburg July 1st, 1863 with 496 officers and men. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they walked out that afternoon with 99 men. Wow. Uh, they actually hold the record in the U.S. Army for the highest percent casualties by an infantry regiment in a day, 80.2%. Wow. And yes, that beats the first Minnesota because the first yes. Minnesota numbers are completely fabricated. Yeah, I actually, um, I've just been reading about that uh, recently because um, I'm I'm doing the event in, in Gettysburg on the first Minnesota, but uh, in the appendix of uh, the history, um, the the more modern history of the regiment, um, Pale Horse at Plum Run. Yes, Pale Horse at Plum Run. Excellent book. I recommend everyone who's interested in this controversy read it closely, especially Appendix Four. And and I, I will say. Um, um, not to get too much on the first Minnesota tangent, but um, I didn't even realize till much later when I started kind of uh, deep diving into Gettysburg and stuff that that the first Minnesota had a lot of companies detached in other places. Like I assumed that like that was the whole regiment that made that charge, and not knowing that they had several companies on Provost, on Picket, or correct, in yeah, and, and they actually had eleven companies too. 
you know, they had yeah. the Sharp, second company, Sharp. second company, uh, Minnesota sharpshooters was permanently mm -hmm. attached to the regiment. Uh, I actually, it's funny because I'm actually writing an article currently on this about how, the mythos of the first Minnesota's losses in the battle. I've actually been writing with the author of that oh, book. Wow. Uh, I actually have a copy literally of the first Minnesota's mooring report two days before the battle. Do you know how many guys the first Minnesota had going in? approximately 420 to 430 men president the battle <laughs> and they only suffered about 225 casualties so they're barely over 50 percent casualties in the battle now that's yeah. of course not to take away like one yeah. of the best dramatic moments of the war the charge of the of the battalion of the first minnesota the seven companies going in like it's an incredibly dramatic moment i won't take away from the sacrifice or whatever but william lochtrin their adjutant is a lying lying man <laughs> And all of the information, which is funny, though, because even if you read Fox's regimental losses in the Civil War, he gets his info from Lochtran because Lochtran had just run the regiment, the history of the first Minnesota for various Minnesota publications, uses his numbers exactly. But the best part is it has an asterisk next to it. It is basically like, well, it's only for July 2nd. I purposely cut out as much as I could from this. You know, it's kind of funny. It's a story well, you know, story. Um, <laughs> no that's great and um thanks for bringing attention to that and uh um but like uh on that same note of numbers um because i remember hearing this um as far as the iron brigade is concerned um right before the battle um uh wasn't there a detachment taken from each regiment to make like a uh, was it so, a, a guard for the so, a, a reserve or a Yes. Like, so the Iron so Brigade Guard was formed. Minute. Yeah, the Iron Brigade Guard was formed immediately before the battle. Um, the idea is it would be a reserve force of a kind for the brigade. And it was 20 men from each regiment. And then mm -hmm. an officer from the second and an officer from the sixth Wisconsin. Uh, so it formed a small hundred men, two company battalion. Uh, during okay. the so during the battle, it was attached to the 6th Wisconsin because the 6th Wisconsin was the last regiment in line. Mm -hmm. uh, the 1st Division, 1st Corps, Wadsworth Division is the first one onto the scene on to support Buford. Cutler's 2nd Brigade is actually in the lead. Uh, um, and then Meredith's Iron Brigade is the following one. Abner Doubleday, who at the time is the acting 1st Corps commander because Reynolds is the wing commander, um, pulls the 6th Wisconsin and thereby also the Iron Brigade Guard out of line as a reserve for the division, which was a brilliant decision because that gave him a ready reserve when Cutler's Brigade was flanked and collapsed. It gave him a force to counterattack along the railroad cut where the Iron Brigade Guard, um, the 6th Wisconsin at the time had 10 companies, but they only chose to, uh, they combined companies, so they only had fielded eight. Their, the Iron Brigade Guard got split and served as their flank companies during the charge. So all of those men were definitely engaged. Uh, there is some discussion about whether they were accounted for in the morning report or not, or they're a separate one. But the uh, one of the majors of the 19th Indiana, or the Lieutenant Colonel in the 19th Indiana, Dudley, did a, because there was no brigade report ever filed during the war. He filed one in the 1870s uh, yes. with a different uh, listing of the numbers involved than had been shown previously. And he pretty much says that I, I think they were accounted for in the regimental morning report. So I think the 496 for the 24th includes the 20 guys fighting with the guard. Gotcha. So still accurate numbers there. As far as oh. I understand it.
Yeah. Okay. I actually just came across that Dudley um, account because uh, um, I'm doing a big uh, Gettysburg project right now. And, and uh, I found out, I was like, yeah, where's the 19th Indiana report? And then <laughs> I, learned that, I learned about all that. And so I found a, like a PDF online for one of the university websites. And uh, thought that was an interesting read. But uh, um, so take us to the 24th Michigan as they get onto the field and uh, where they get started and where their position is on that sure. first day of the battle. So they start the morning at Marsh Creek, which if you take the Emmitsburg Road south of the battlefield, uh, eventually you'll come to Marsh Creek, which is this large creek. And they were the first division, first corps was camped on the north uh, end of the uh, of the creek. And they actually start the morning. Um, they, you know, they knew that they were moving off to support the cavalry. Contact was likely. So they started the morning with William Way, the regimental chaplain who, by the way, frankly, is one of the best regimental chaplains during the war. This guy was, you know, some chaplains are pretty weak sauce. This guy was, this guy was in, a, he served with the regiment the whole war. He was uh, an incredibly important figure in the regiment. He was giving a morning prayer to the men, you know, whether, you know, I think it's very comparable to Father Corby giving last rites to the Irish. Oh, wow. You know, something yeah. very, and as an added thing to this, the men, um, got this prayer while holding their hats out and they, and guys were going down the line, dropping cartridges into their hats. That was when they drew their ammunition was while essentially getting last rites. Mm. Um, so they, uh, they form up and they're fourth in line in the brigade. So the six Wisconsin's behind them and they march out down the Emmitsburg Pike or the Emmitsburg road. And at the Kadori farm, the large red barn, right in, in what's now Pickett's charge field, at that point, Reynolds and his staff had pulled down fence rails to make a pathway to, instead of marching through town, they ended up going straight across fields. And as soon as they started turning there, they started double quicking um, towards uh, McPherson's Ridge and uh, McPherson's Woods and went directly in a beeline towards that. So as they're marching, they're loading rifles, fixing bayonets. Uh, they were ordered to drop packs, but Morrow decided not to. So the 24th did go into action with packs. He didn't want the guys uh -huh. to lose them. He didn't want detached guys to guard them. Um, Which uh, that's a that's an interesting note because um, I can't tell you how many different accounts I have read of soldiers that are just so distraught when they drop packs and like I'm never going to see it again and like I'm going to lose all my stuff again and. And uh, I even in, in our reenacting hobby, like sometimes I get used to just wearing it and, you know, you kind of forget it's there sometimes, but I mean, it is a relief to take it off. Don't get me wrong, but it's oh. like it, you have so many personal things in there too, that that meant a lot. I mean, that was a, that was a crucial decision there. It doesn't seem like it is, but it's a crucial decision. Whether you keep your packs or not. And I think that goes to Morrow being a soldier's officer, you know, he's, he get, he understands what that means to the soldiers to drop their packs. And he makes that decision to keep with them, even though, you know, the the whole brigade was ordered to drop them. So yeah, um, they go into battle and they deploy and they're the leftmost regiment in the brigade at this point. And the iron brigades fighting archers, uh, Tennessee brigade at this point. Mm -hmm. um, and this is the part where the second Wisconsin, the first regiment in line is the one that makes the charge over the, you know, the Confederates have pushed Buford's guys back. They're coming over the crest of McPherson's Ridge actually splits into a Y at a certain point. So Archer's guys are cresting the West side of McPherson's Ridge. 
while the second Wisconsin's cresting the east side of McPherson's Ridge, and they're only about 50 yards apart when they fire at each other. That's the volley where Reynolds is killed behind the line. He was not killed by a sniper. He's most likely killed by this <laughs> volley. But that volley kill uh, took 30% of the second Wisconsin out of action in one volley. Wow. I mean, yeah, just, just, I mean, very few regiments could take that kind of casualties at one point and keep going forward. But I mean, there, I don't think there's a tougher regiment in the army than the second Wisconsin. You know, that's no, arguable. And, I get and, it, uh, but. <laughs> and, you, and you say that, I, I think a lot of people probably don't realize that they, they took that severe of a hit um, that early in the fight. Like um, I think a lot of people just think most of the casualties in our brigade are, in that stand they make, but it's, uh, that's, that's interesting to hear that. I mean, yeah. as soon as you get on the field, they're getting hit pretty hard. Well, and to the 24th, so the rest of the army brigade deploys in echelon and the 24th actually overlaps archers flank. So they change front forward on the right. So they swing to the right and they flank archers brigade. Uh, during this exchange, Lieutenant Colonel Flanagan is wounded. He ends up losing his leg, as well as the color bearer, a guy named Abel Peck, who is a very popular figure in the regiment, uh, father of three or four guys out of Plymouth, Michigan. Uh, so they're already taking some casualties, but the 24th flanks Archer's Brigade, and they roll up Archer's entire brigade, which, you know, it's kind of funny. Everyone talks about the 26th with uh, North Carolina and the duel they have, and that's an epic fight. But the 24th has already started the day by essentially destroying a brigade of the Army of Northern Virginia. Mm -hmm. And Archer's Brigade suffers massive casualties, probably north of a thousand casualties against the Iron Brigade. You know, they're just a shit. They're, they're out of the fight. They're a shell of their former selves. They do participate in Pickett's Charge, and they're under uh, Brickett Fry, uh, one of their colonels, because Archer is captured by the 2nd Wisconsin. Um, but after this, there's a lull on the battlefield. And this is where the 24th pulls back to their position where their marker and their monument is. And the re the brigade gets reshuffled. The second Wisconsin's taken so many casualties. They get moved into the center of the brigade and the 24th gets put on it into the center as well with them. And now the 19th becomes the left, left flank of the brigade. Um, they put out two companies as skirmishers, and this is where they are when Pettigrew's brigade of North Carolinians attack them in the afternoon. And that's a huge uh, brigade, probably one, if not the it largest, is, better brigade in Lee's it, army. It is the largest brigade on the battlefield. I want to say they have 2,800 guys. The only one that's even close is Julius Daniels' brigade of Rhodes' division, 2nd Corps uh, Army in Northern Virginia. I mean, the 26th North Carolina alone is 900 guys. It's just massive. And I think they even they left the regiment behind, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, um, I believe I believe one of the regiments isn't there at that point. Correct? Yeah. Yeah, like it's just, so it's crazy, and uh, and the Iron Brigade in a way is is one of the largest brigades in the First Corps because they're pushing what 1900 roughly or yes, yeah, right about there. Uh, Cutler's yeah. Brigade is slightly bigger; they're about 20 mm -hmm. or about an even 2000, but yeah, they're. They're a pretty large brigade, but also, mind you, too, they took a couple hundred casualties to begin with the 6th Wisconsin, which is a large regiment. It's about 450 guys is detached between them and the Iron Brigade Guard. So the Iron Brigade is probably only has about 12 or 1,300 guys online at this point. Gotcha. And the, Iron, and the 24th is by far the largest at 500 guys. Um, and again, they'd taken some casualties, but the 2nd Wisconsin only went in with maybe 300, and now they've got probably 200 left in line, you know, so... Um, when the Confederates, oh. I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, no. Um, I, I, I was setting the, the stage there, but it's like, um, um, 
I know you already referred to it as McPherson's uh, Woods, but um, I've heard several names. Like, uh, so what is your uh, point of view on that debate of what the proper name? Do you do you go ahead with McPherson's or Herbst or Reynolds Wood? I definitely go. I, I go with McPherson's Ridge or Woods personally, just because that's what the majority of things I've read have said. Yeah. Um, the soldiers themselves definitely did not refer to it as Reynolds Woods. Um, you know, I think they, by and large, they kind of take both names, but I think McPherson's is the one that's stuck over time. So it's the easy, you know, it's less confusing to talk about than anything else. So, oh yeah. And I, I, I'm the same. I, I've kind of always said McPherson's. <laughs> yeah. Well, but, uh, and it's, it's interesting too, because it's actually a woodlot, which people today may not understand this, uh, McPherson, uh, Herbst, who's the farmer that's living on the McPherson farm, he rents it from them, grazes his cows in the woods. So it's actually grass under there. It wouldn't have, it, today, if you go through the woods, it's brambles and all uh -huh. that. It was actually grass and fairly closely cut grass because, you know, the cows are grazing off it um, that was under there. So the truth, it was actually, you could see through it incredibly well. Yes. Wow. Yeah. Which, you know, kind of plays a point in this. Um, so, you know, Pettigrew attacks the 26th North Carolina is roughly fronted on the 24th. The, they overlapped a little bit onto the 19th Indiana as well. Um, you know, the 24th Michigan skirmishers get driven in. And then at the base of the ridge is um, Willoughby Run. And essentially, it takes a long time for the 26th to be able to get across the run. Um, it's just such a great feature. The 24th is able to fire and hold them in position. Uh, but eventually the 26th pushes their way up McPherson's woods or Ridge, excuse me. And they're only about 75, maybe 50 yards apart, which is, yeah. you know, the average, the average range of a civil war infantry encounter is somewhere about 112 to 120 yards. And that's mm -hmm. including the dealing with rifles. And, you know, the 24th Michigan is engaging at 50 yards, which is point blank range. <laughs> So neither side uh, is missing. Both regiments, both regiments are just taking turns, just having at it at this oh, point. Oh, yeah, and it's a, it's incredible casualties. Um, part of this too is the brigade on the federal left, which is uh, Biddle's brigade, um, begins to give way. They they pull back further up the ridge, but what this allows is the 11th North Carolina wheels to the north. And they start raking the federal line. And this starts hitting the 19th Indiana first, but it also hits the left wing of the 24th Michigan. Uh, eventually, the 19th Indiana pulls back about 50, 60 yards to try to counter this. But Morrow holds his guys in position. But he orders a guy named uh, Captain Speed, who is the acting major now, to go um, pull to refuse the left flank of the line. Those people familiar with Chamberlain and the 20th Maine, he's, Speed's going to do the same thing. Gotcha. Uh, speed is a um, speed gets over there, refuses the left flank, and as soon as he's accomplished this, is killed. Mm -hmm. um, he's the highest ranking officer from the regiment, killed in action during the battle. Uh, and ever, you know, he's an incredibly popular officer, and you know, really made a like him doing this action was incredibly important for the regiment because it gave him a fighting chance to hold on where they were. Uh, interestingly, his brother is the officer responsible for loading the Sultana later in the war. Wow. If you've heard of that disaster. So when yeah. I was doing my master's research, I was reading his letters, but also reading his brother's letters. It was a very weird combination reading the two of them. 
and, and you know, um, um, I got um, Moro's OR in front of me, and in there he even says that Speed's death was a severe loss to the service and an irreparable one to the regiment. Uh, Speed seems to be a guy that, you know, obviously he was acting major as the senior captain, but he he was an up-and-coming officer in the regiment. You know, he certainly would have moved up to be a permanent field grade officer after the battle if he had survived. And, you know, it's a shame he didn't. Um, but he was just one of, of many who would yes. fall that day. Well, and that I mean, and that's one of the incredible parts about this is uh, eventually the 24th is, starts to fall back. Uh, Morrow, like I said earlier, Morrow is most likely acting as the brigade commander and regimental commander at this point. Um, Meredith went down early in this fighting when a shell exploded under his horse and crushed him under the horse. He's wounded badly. He never returns to service. Uh, William Robinson of the seventh Wisconsin is actually supposed is the next senior Colonel. William Robinson never assumed command of the brigade until after they were back on cemetery Hill. And actually the division commander had to order him to assume command of the brigade. Oh, wow. Yeah. Which by this point, he's one of only two colonels left with the brigade because Morrow has been wounded by this point. Um, um, but... to, to go back uh, uh, just a little bit uh, to Meredith, because um, uh, in part of my research too, like uh, there's not much out there. He didn't really write a whole lot. Um, and it seems from what I understand is he wasn't necessarily a well-liked commander of the brigade coming from guys who were probably used to being led by John Gibb and, and such. So, that, was the opinion of Meredith by Morrow and the brigade? Uh, you know, I can't speak exactly for the 24th, but I will say, A, John Gibbon hated Meredith. Uh, Meredith was a political <laughs> animal. He was good friends with Governor Morton of Indiana and tried to get Gibbon removed from command. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. he And when that didn't succeed, he tried to get the 19th assigned to a different brigade because essentially uh, Gibbon thought that the 19th was undisciplined. And... Uh, mm. really held Meredith responsible for that. Meredith, when he got promoted to Brigadier General, um, was trying to get the 19th pulled out to whatever new brigade he went to, but instead saw Gibbon was getting promoted, so went to, took over the Iron Brigade. He's actually relieved of duty, or relieved of command on the battlefield at Fredericksburg. Uh, whatever he did during the day, he didn't respond quickly enough to an order. Uh, Abner Doubleday, who at the time was his division commander, removed him. Uh, later he was reinstated, but that certainly was a, uh, you know, a stain on his record. And I, you know, he was, he was an okay officer, but I don't think he was, he certainly wasn't up to the level of John Gibbon and unfortunately kind of marked the, a series of mediocre commanders that the iron brigade would have for a lot of the rest of the war. Uh, William yeah. Robinson eventually did, you know, um, Lysander Cutler, who had been Colonel of six Wisconsin eventually took over the iron brigade mm -hmm. again but very quickly was promoted to division command in 64, leaving William Robinson, the guy who wouldn't take command at Gettysburg <laughs> in charge. And William Robinson is sent home in the summer of 64. Uh, okay. After that, Edward Bragg takes over, who is Colonel of the sixth Wisconsin uh, eventually is promoted to Brigadier general. Uh, he falls into drink and is actually relieved in the middle of the battle of Hatcher's run in 1865 for <laughs> drunkenness. And Morrow is put in command of the brigade. Uh, and like wow. I said, Morrow finishes the war as commander. So they finished on a strong note, but they had a series of not the best commanders after that, after Gibbon for a while. Oh, so. Yeah. so, um, uh, um, 
to get back to the fighting then like uh and and this this duel of two regiments and, and like um you know i know it's not totally household but if you had household regimental names a lot of people have heard of the 24th michigan and the 26th north carolina just because of this bloody bloody showdown uh famous I showdown on this first day of gettysburg and for how long, like you, like you said, they're, they're 50 yards apart and they're getting overlapped. But I mean, how long are they pummeling each other um, well, at length like that? So they're doing it long enough, at least, that the 24th needs a resupply of ammunition. So they go through a full 60 loads of ammo. Uh, eventually, the 1st Division, 1st Corps Ordnance Train supplied like 75,000 rounds, to the 1st and 3rd Divisions. So it means at least it was an hour. You know, like, like it probably was an hour to two hours of this just close rain, brutal combat. You know, mind you, as these weapons get fired, the rate of fire slows significantly. I don't know if you've ever live fired a, a musket, but they get pretty hard to load after about 10 or 15 rounds. Um, but it's it's not a static fight. The 24th actually starts pulling back. Um, they would end up having 10 different fighting positions during their retreat as they made their way from the west part of McPherson's Ridge all the way to their last stand at the base of the seminary on Seminary Ridge. Um, but what happened is as they pulled back, they got into the middle. There's this swale between McPherson's Ridge and Seminary Ridge. And uh, the 24th really took a lot of their casualties there. They lost pretty significantly before they ever left the woods. But this okay. is where the wheels really start coming off the bus. Um, the 26 never advanced beyond McPherson's Woods. They got to roughly where like the Reynolds death marker is today and they stopped, which is a testament to how many guys they'd lost by that oh, point. Yeah. Uh, so they actually, the two regiments engaged in this long range firefight for a while by long range, you know, one or 200 yards. Mm -hmm. But the 24th is now in the open and at the bottom of the hill and they're getting plunging fire coming in. Um, yeah. You know, the 24th, it's one of the famous incidents is the color guard there. Most likely nine different men carried the colors at one point or another at Gettysburg um, during the middle of this fight. And also the, the companies are completely mixed up. And one of the ways we know is a guy named uh, Private Kelly of E Company, which was one of the left flank companies of the regiment, takes the uh, – Morrow grabs the colors at some point because the entire color guard has now been killed or wounded. Kelly runs up and says, no colonel of the 24th will carry the colors while I'm alive, grabs the colors from Morrow, is almost instantly struck in the head and killed. Morrow takes the colors back, and he's trying to rally the regiment. And by this point, there's maybe three officers left under him in the regiment. Mm -hmm. um, Morrow is struck in the head. He gets a really bad scalp wound. Um, and uh, he's knocked out of the fight. One of the few lieutenants pulls him back into town. Uh, Morrow ends up getting captured during the battle. Um, but now a guy named uh, Albert Edwards takes command of the regiment. He's the seventh most junior captain in the regiment. Uh, you know, he is not the guy that people thought were taking over. Uh, but it's, but you know, it's fascinating. Like it goes to this point of how well this regiment is prepared that by this point, there's, he's the only captain left and he has two or three lieutenants operating with him, And they're still keeping the regiment going in this fight. Yeah. I was about to say like, um, um, they're taking these staggering losses, but they're keeping their cohesion and they're still functioning as a regiment, regardless of all this chaos and destruction. I mean, one of the things that's fascinating, there's there's very few instances in the Civil War of regiments losing 75 plus percent casualties. 
Uh, the first corps has two other regiments that lose that percentage within a hundred yards of them. The second Wisconsin to their immediate right loses a 77 or 78% casualties. The 151st and the second Wisconsin stays in the fight, just like all the regiments, of the iron brigade, but the seven or the 151st Pennsylvania is to their left. Uh, when the 19th Indiana starts pulling back, the 151st Pennsylvania school teacher regiment gets sent in to make a charge to counterattack, and they lose 75% casualties in about 15 minutes, but they break and run, showing like what a morale shock it can be to lose that kind of, um, you know, that amount of guys. And, and it's worth noting that the 151st, like they were literally two weeks away or something from mustering yes. out. Yeah, they're a nine-month regiment, and this is, yeah, they're – they're only like 40 miles from home. They're two weeks away from mustering out. And they they make this charge and just get their teeth kicked in. Oh, yeah. No, incredible. But the uh, the 24th ends up back on um, earlier in the day, one of the divisions in the first corps had stacked fence rails at the base of the seminary. Mm -hmm. uh, there was a grove. If you go to the seminary now, there's um, tennis courts there. Um, so roughly where the tennis courts on the seminary are is where the Iron Brigade made its last stand. And what's interesting is that um, Pettigrew's brigade stops. They don't charge across the field. It's actually a new division. This is Pender's division now that comes out of the field. Mm -hmm. And the 24th is immediately opposed by Scales Brigade, I believe South Carolinians. Uh, I'm sorry, North Carolinians. Um, and they come across the field. And what's interesting by this point is you have three federal brigades, Stone's Brigade, the Iron Brigade, and um, Biddle's Brigade on this ridge, as well as about 18 guns. Um, in, uh, Charles Wainwright, the first corps artillery chief had stacked all these guns together. And so when Pender's division comes charging to the field, it's a slaughter. They get to the swale yeah. where the 24th had lost a lot of guys and the, the entire, those three brigades, plus all the batteries. Um, Wainwright says it was like one hand pulled all the, the lanyards together. And yeah. Scales Brigade loses a third of its guys in a second. I know that's what's amazing. Like you have this fresh Confederate division on the field and they just get hammered uh, almost instantaneously. And uh, one last hurrah for the Iron Brigade kind of on that final day of the battle. I mean, the oh, first. Oh, yeah. I mean, and unfortunately, one of Pender's brigades ends up forcing the further down, uh, further to mm -hmm. the Union left, and the first corps position collapses. I mean, yeah. they were already at this point flanked from the north by Ewell's division because the 11th Corps had already collapsed. Um, and the Iron Brigade pulls off the ridge. One of the interesting things, and in, you know, one of the last uh, part of this mythos of the color guard is as Edwards is leaving, and he only had 27 men left with him at this point. You know, again, I said 99 made it through the battle. Yeah. Um, but you know, it's so confusing guys ended up with different regiments, whatever he has the last sure. 27 men under his command. He's pulling them back. And as he's looking on this barricade, he sees a private holding the colors. Um, and the 24th only had a national set of colors. They didn't have a state or regimental color there. They only had national colors. And this private is slumped on the back of the, uh, the back of the fence rail holding the colors. And Edwards didn't know who he was. So he's a mystery to this day, but Edwards grabs the colors and they, retreat back through town to cemetery Hill, mm -hmm. um, you know, kind of the, you know, last row of, you know, something like six or seven guys gave their lives defending the colors in the 24th. And if you've never seen a picture, uh, you can easily find one online, but I mean, the, the colors are just completely shot to pieces during the fighting. Oh um, yeah. And now, um, uh, 
one more thing about that that last stand real quick uh with the the braille pile it's like um had they not punched pender's division in the teeth like that for the brief time that they did had they not formed that little resistance i mean pender's whole fresh division i mean that would have been even more fresh confederate troops uh marching through the town to uh put pressure on cemetery hill oh i mean yeah certainly that played a big factor i'm sure scales and mcgowan's brigade are just wrecked by this fighting yeah um and then you know i'm so i mean like two of the brigades in the division are just i mean 50 plus percent casualties already (laughs) yeah so you're exactly right like that that definitely played into the factor of why lee didn't try to force cemetery hill um you know and as much as we talk about the losses of the 24th michigan you know they it's a huge amount of losses at 399 guys but they inflict or i'm sorry 397 but they inflict huge casualties they're probably responsible for somewhere north of 800 to 1000 casualties you know if i mm-hmm. had to put a guess on it so they certainly gave much better than they took yeah and uh one thing i i have noticed and um i'm looking at the uh Busey and martin figures um uh, in front of me um um uh, one thing that's striking to me though um okay so for many of the first day regiments union regiments that fall on the first day you know when you look at the casualty totals like wow like oh wow these guys lost 300 guys these guys lost 400 but when you look at the nitty-gritty many of those regiments had like 200 captured or 250 captured but but one thing that's striking about uh the 24th here is that uh very few were captured compared to the number of killed and wounded yes Uh, which that has to go for the kind of that they were fighting more than anything. <laughs> uh, yes. I mean, and so that's actually one of the interesting things. Morrow makes his report in February of 64. So, and also again, he was wounded during the action. So he's mm-hmm. not the one who compiles the casualty figures. And what's interesting is he chose to omit the missing. So the, the iron brigade or the 24th did suffer 81 missing in action. The, I assume okay. the majority of them were uh, captured. Um, but he only gives 316 casualties, which is interesting because if you include the 81, that's where the, the full number comes from. But it's also interesting because, again, if you go to Fox's regimental losses, even though the missing was reported later, Fox chose to omit it, which, again, artificially drives down their percentage. But, yeah, they only suffered, you know, 12% of the regiment captured, and a good chunk of those, I think, were wounded and captured kind of thing. So. Mm-hmm. So, um, so the regiment there, uh, what's left of them is running through Gettysburg uh, at this point. Uh, you know, everyone's heading towards Cemetery Hill. Um, so where um, the survivors of the 24th, where are they going to and where do they end up? So, um, you know, there's the famous thing about Hancock being in But Hancock wasn't there yet. Uh, Doubleday and Howard are the ones who really start the process of setting up the defense. And early on, they realize that Culp's Hill needs troops. And Doubleday turns to the shattered remnants of the Iron Brigade, and he sends the 750 guys left of them up to Culp's Hill. Uh, so they're on the northwest section of Culp's Hill, what today is near Stevens Knoll. And the mm-hmm. 24th is now the left of the Iron Brigade. Uh, so they're immediately, uh, on their immediate left is where Stevens' 5th main battery gets set up. Um, and they so dig that- in there marker there i'm i'm sorry there's yeah. that little marker for the 24th there that's that's pretty accurate close to the where they actually were correct yes good 
Uh, and you can actually visit the original. Uh, if you go visit that marker, you can see the remnants of their original earthworks there. They did dig in that night of July 1st. Um, sometime on July 2nd, Ed, Captain Edwards gave a speech to the 99 survivors of the regiment. Uh, he organized them into a four-company battalion. He had a couple officers that were lightly wounded that returned to duty. Um, and that's where they fought for the rest of the battle. They didn't... Um, as far as I know, they may have been firing during the assault on the night of July 2nd. Uh, they certainly weren't engaged at all on the fighting on the east side of Culp's Hill, though. They held their positions in the trenches for the rest of the battle. And unlike uh, maybe some of the other units around them, you know, that area where those rifle pits are is a pretty, was it a pretty open area during the battle right there? Or was it wooded? Like, were they in the cover of woods? Um, as far as far as I know, they were kind of like half in, half out. The left oh. half of the regiment would have been able to give pretty good flanking fire to Hayes' assault on the night of July 2nd from uh, Early's division. But the other half was in the, the woods of Culp's Hill, which, again, were more open at the time than they are now. People kind of tend to forget that it was common for farmers to send pigs out into, you know, mm -hmm. to, to feed and, you know, which meant that woods at the time in North America were a lot more open than we're used to yeah. today, since there's way less animals feeding in the underbrush. So, so were were they under fire a lot on the second and third day? Um, no, they they had a pretty quiet sector of the front for the rest of the battle. So they yeah. they avoided pretty much any other fighting. Well, well, well deserved in a sense that uh, <laughs> they were spared. Uh, because when you think about these regiments, even the 26th North Carolina, for example, that gets pummeled. Uh, on the first day, but then they go and take part in Pickett's Charge and get pummeled some more in Pickett's well, Charge. And not and, only do they take part in Pickett's Charge, they go the farthest of anyone in Pickett's yeah. Charge. Everyone talks about Armistead, but if you actually look where the 26 got to, because there's that discontinuity in the wall, they get all the way to Hayes' line. Now, granted, it's like a couple guys get there, but they get further than Armistead's guys do. Oh, oh, and uh, I've read into this a lot lately, too, that the North Carolinians uh, and Virginians had their own big rivalry going and North Carolina uh, consistently felt like they were just overshadowed by Virginia, not only in leadership uh, during the war, but also in literature after the war and writings that they get forgotten a lot. And, you know, and I think in recent times, there's a lot more respect for the 26th North Carolina maybe now uh, and what they did on July 1st and July 3rd. But, I will. Well, I agree with that. I will also say that brigade went on to become one of the in the later part of the war that became one of the premier brigades in Lee's army. There is a great red, uh, brigade history by Earl J. Hess called Lee's Tar Heels. I really mm -hmm. recommend it because it talks about uh, the Pettigrew McRae brigade and all they do later in the war. They're really responsible for a lot of stuff you see at like Ream, uh, Ream Station and some of those big, you know, big Confederate successes in 64, 65. Wow. It, it was, yeah, they have a really storied history. And so before um, come the close of the battle. So so um, statistic, uh, if you could go down, like, so what exactly were their total losses as far as killed, wounded, missing? If you could break all that down for the battle. Sure. Uh, again, they went in with 496 men of all ranks going into the battle. Oh, sorry. I'm trying to scroll to where I have it in front of them. Uh, yeah. So they lost 79 killed, 237 wounded, 81 missing for 99 remaining 
Killed and wounded, 64%. Total percentage of loss, 80.2. You know, for me, that's that's always one of the staggering numbers of the war. And, you know, I, I think about with the 24th that they were raised in a very local area. Even, you know, even though they're from Detroit, a lot of the companies are from the surrounding communities in Wayne County. C Company, for example, is from Plymouth. And the of the 101 original members, I think something like 72 are either brothers, brothers-in-law, cousins, fathers, sons, um, fathers-in-law, or like they're directly related in some way. Like they have a direct familial bond. Mm. So you're talking about incredibly closely knit unit. And that company lost, uh, I think they went in with 56 men and like six came out. Wow. Yeah. No, it's in, it's, it's staggering uh, to look um at these losses, it's an incredible, and uh, it shows. Yeah, it shows just exactly how rough of a time they had in the battle. Casualties can speak for themselves. Sometimes, um, incredible. So, um, with all their um, heroic deeds in in the battle, and and the legacy of the Iron Brigade going forward, are there any um myths involving what the 24th did on the first day um or or anything that kind of just got misinformed after the fact um i mean the the myth the the color guard it's definitely not a myth but it's definitely you know a well-spoken point for them um there's a lot of mythos about the 24th colors that's for sure um you know, the, the 24th colors uh, were from Tiffany in New York. They were uh, presented by one of the lieutenant, the fathers of one of the lieutenants. Um, you know, they're an incredibly ornate set of colors and they were just shot to pieces completely. Mm. Um, in terms of one of the things that's interesting is Morrow, after he was wounded, uh, they patched up his head and he ended up spending the rest of the battle helping Union surgeons at some point, a Confederate officer went to go arrest them. And Morrow, who was head of the Lodge Number no. 1 of Michigan, made some Masonic t- sign to this officer, who was also a Mason. And the officer permitted him to rip off his uh, his eagles. And Morrow put a green surgeon sash around his uh, oh, waist wow. and spent the rest of the battle pretending to be a doctor. Um, <laughs> and consequently avoided being marched south with the rest of the army at the end of the war. With the, at the end of the battle with the Confederate Army, so he was released on July fourth, and I, and so that's true. He actually he actually did that. Yes, uh, as far as I know. So, so um, uh, uh, there was a many. I guess there's many cases of that where um, various wounded officers and men were able to be spared uh, being taken on that uh, terrible retreat after Gettysburg, um, and were fortunate to be left behind like that. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, and to be fair, Morrow's wound was pretty severe. He he wasn't able to return to service until he briefly returned to service. And then when he realized that uh, his wound was pretty severe, he ended up not returning till the 64 campaign. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. So it, there, it's arguable that he may not have been in a condition to actually go south as a, you know, wounded as a, sure. you know, that he would have been up to walking all the way back to Virginia anyway. So. And um, I know um, this isn't the 24th, but uh, I forget which Iron Brigade regiment it, it might be the 6th. The story of the uh, the man who uh, he saved, uh, he may have been a co-bearer of the 6th, he saved the flag by, uh, he was wounded going to the rear, 
and uh, they tied the flag around his waist or something like that. And then Ooh, it's it's a Wisconsin regiment. I want to say it's the seventh Wisconsin. You might be right. And yeah. and he was in the hospital bed, and they said, "Hey, the Confederates are coming." He he had the ladies of the house. Um, rip a hole into the mattress and sew it into the mattress. Do, do Correct. You yes. This? Yes. That, that is a true story. I can't remember. I want to say it's the seventh. Um, yeah. If it I was... remember right, the color bearer got hit in a blast of canister as they're retreating into town. Mm -hmm. So, and at that point, I mean, the retreat into town in Gettysburg, if anyone thinks that that was orderly, it was not, you know, fragments of regiments were sticking, like the Confederates were in the north end of town. That's where a lot of the first corps captured came from, was from Rhodes and Ewell's, uh, Early's Brigade coming in from the north. Um, so it was very confusing. And I guess this guy got left behind with the colors. And yeah, when they liberated him July 4th, he proudly showed him the colors again. Oh, yeah, that's that's incredible. That's um, and uh, God bless those guys. But uh they were the fortunate ones, I guess, the ones that uh, were able to be reunited with their regiment after all that. Yes. Um, you know, one of the things I love is after the battle, you know, it took a while to rebuild the 24th. Obviously, a lot of the wounded returned to service over time. Um, Edwards remained in command for a while. He ended up as lieutenant colonel. But there's a great story in the fall of 63. Uh, the regiments re-expanded out to 10 companies. But for some reason, F Company is literally a sergeant and a private but for some reason they were allowed to parade as their own company. And the best part is this is Edwards's own company. So they're doing battalion drill and they, he has the, the battalion moving by the flank and he goes by company in the line, which, you know, is a comp, it's a long maneuver if you're on the left flank of the company, cause you have to go run to position. Well, of course this company with two bed, the private stepped around the sergeant to the other side and, you know, Edwards calls halt. He goes, great job, F Company. You know, you're the pride of the regiment. You know, and all the guys got to chuckle out because they realize, that, you know, F Company had essentially been destroyed at Gettysburg. And like, you know, I mean, it tells you something about these guys that they can just laugh at that three months after just getting, you know. Yeah, yeah. No, I admire that about these guys. I mean, the, the dark humor that was necessary sometimes, too. I mean, it's true. But. I mean. Oh yeah. I mean, and anyone who's been in the military today, whether yeah. you've been in combat or not, dark humor is, it, it's just the way you get through that kind of life. So. Oh yeah. And that's what people don't maybe don't understand from the outside. This, these guys had to cope and deal with whatever they had to, whatever way they could. Um, and so, yeah, it must've been, uh, like you said, for the communities back home, uh, for these soldiers, I mean, they lost messmates. They lost, uh, you know, uh, families, uh, suffered terribly uh, after all this. So it was a terrible time, I'm sure, um, for the people back home and for the men on campaign afterwards, uh, all this. so. Oh, absolutely. Well, uh, now that we, uh, we've uh, pretty much rounded up uh, most uh, everything on the, the whole uh, discussion of the 24th at Gettysburg. Um, so do you personally have any recommended books and articles or, or whatnot um, involving the 24th in particular and maybe your favorite books on Gettysburg? Um, well, first of all, I got to say that the uh, the regimental history, which was done in the 1890s, it was uh, done by a, a committee of the regiment, but it was written by Orson B. Curtis, who was a corporal in the regiment. He was actually lost an arm at Fredericksburg in 62. I would say hands down is the best regimental history 
um, written by a veteran in the war. I mean, it's, it's an incredible book. Uh, you know, the, the broader history of the war is a little schmaltzy that's in there, but the stories that are in there are incredible. Um, you know, at that time, historians didn't really cite where things came from, but he actually gives citations of where some of the stuff comes from. Um, and part of it is the demographic information. He has 30 pages of demographic information. Um, that's how we're able to reevaluate their casualties at Gettysburg because he went down and hunted down the names of everyone there and what happened to them. And so we know that there were 81 guys that were missing there because he found the names of them. Mm-hmm. but you know, just an incredible assemblage. He talks a lot about what happened to the guys after the war, who mustered out with the regiment, who was mustered out along the way, who was you know, wounded at what battles. It's a great book. Um, there are a couple, there are a couple published uh, letter and diary accounts. One is called dear Sarah. Um, it's about a soldier. Oh, I'm trying to remember uh, John H. Paddington. And then there's another one that's from uh, the Sanilac County Historical Society called This is Walter. I'm trying to remember what his last name is, if you excuse me. Walter Niles. Um, they're both pretty they, – they give some good insight. I like them because they both uh, – you know, they're the enlisted soldier perspective and they give some really good ones. There's some great letter, uh, letter collections at the University of Michigan Bentley Library, which is one of the premier – Civil War libraries, if anyone out there is looking to do research. Um, I'll say, you know, Alan Nolan's The Iron Brigade is what got really got me hooked on The Iron Brigade. It's, you know, written in the 60s, but it's probably like the very, it's a trend-setting military history. It's the first modern military history of the war, of a unit during the war. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I saw, I, I know you sent me a picture beforehand. I know it's on your desk. It's a, I mean, I love that read. It's a great book. And uh, to be honest with you, it's one of the few Iron Brigade books I've actually read cover to cover. Um, there's so many that I've certainly flipped through uh, in my time and researching online. Uh, but there's a lot out there uh, for the I, Iron Brigade. <laughs> oh, yeah. And, you know, Lance Hurtigan has been the standard bearer for the Iron Brigade for the last you know decade or two. He's written some good ones, including one about Gettysburg. I will say, you know, I love Lance. He is a Wisconsin guy, so he he tends to focus a little bit more on their contributions to the brigade, uh, a little bit sometimes at at the detriment of the Indiana and Michigan guys. Um, but the uh, there there is a uh, there's a cool book called Giants in the Black Hats. It's a it's a group of essays about the Iron Brigade, about different uh, uh, different things. Alan Nolan's in it. I know uh, Mark and Beth Storch are in it. I want to say Alan Gaff, who's another Iron Brigade historian's in it. So that's worth a read too. If people haven't read that, it talks a lot about like Fitzhugh's crossing in 63 and some of those incidents. And uh, you've also mentioned that uh, um, you've written a few articles for Gettysburg Magazine. Is that right? That is. Uh, my master's thesis on the 24th Michigan was came out with them in, uh, I want to say July of uh, 2019. It's the Wookie, uh, Rookie Wolverines. Uh, I also had a article on who really commanded the Iron Brigade at Gettysburg that came out in January of 2019. Um, And I'm hoping that the the article I'm working on currently on the first Minnesota would get picked up by them as well. So, Wow. Yeah, that'd be cool. So are you um, amid all these different articles and research that you're uh, working on? Do you have a book uh, that you're working on or anything? Oh, oh, uh, 
Yes. So I've been for years doing research on sharpshooter battalions in the Army of the Potomac. And I don't mean like Berdan sharpshooters, the bucktails. I actually mm -hmm. mean in starting in 63, a lot of units in the Army of the Potomac started to form their own sharpshooter units out of volunteers. And by 1864, it became army-wide policy. And it's really been a, I came across it in a couple different places. I started pulling at strings and I realized no one's ever written about this before. Oh, um, wow. And I have a good friend. Uh, I have a friend, uh, Eric Burke, who's uh, just wrote a great history on the 15th Corps of the Army in Tennessee, who I've been working on this article for years. He's like, you don't have an article here. You have a book. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, well, I guess steer into the curve and uh, let's or steer into the skid and let's write a book. So trying to trying to get some resources together and, you know, expand out, tell a complete story. But, you know, part of it is I got to frame it and talk about light infantry, which is it's mm -hmm. become a fascinating thing for me is oh, like, yeah. you know, light infantry is kind of something people forget about. And everyone assumes it's just skirmishing in the civil war. And there's really a lot more to it. You know, it's about setting the battlefield and patrol, oh, you know, long distance patrols and stuff. And there's a lot more than people tend to give credit in the civil war. So. Oh yeah. And, and that's a hard thing to do to find a topic that hasn't been written a hundredfold already. Um, so good for you for, for finding something like that. Thank you. Uh, I actually, uh, uh, just side note, um, I've been researching a lot of the regiments that got assigned to the Army of the Potomac right after Gettysburg, and one of them was the 1st New York Battalion Sharpshooters got attached to the Iron Brigade. They did. Uh, yeah, those uh, they were four companies that were originally supposed to be for, whether it was for Burdan's 3rd Regiment, I'm not sure, but um, mm -hmm. they ended up serving with the seventh Corps until late 63 and then came over to the iron brigade. They ended up serving as with either the iron brigade or the fourth division, third Corps, later the th or fifth Corps, excuse me, later the third division, fifth Corps when they got uh, amalgamated, but they really got destroyed at Weldon railroad in August of 64. I think they only had 50 guys left after that battle. So they right. pretty much were just a, a company after that point. So well, um, Andrew, uh, to uh, wrap things up with this, uh, I've been having a great time with this conversation. Yeah. This has been awesome. But uh, um, some of our listeners, I'm sure, are familiar with the Civil War Digital Digest. And you and Will Eichler have been working on this uh, for uh, a few years now, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, yeah, so uh, Will started about seven or eight years ago now, and then uh, he brought me on as a visiting historian a couple of years, uh, you know, about three, four years ago. And then uh, two years ago now I joined as a producer and staff historian for the show. Oh, wow. Well, congratulations. And I know you've been pumping out some uh, content pretty frequently on there ever since. And, uh, but for anyone who uh, is new or, or hasn't heard of the digest, um, I'll give you an opportunity to, to plug a little bit of, of what it is and what you guys do. Sure. So we're a web-based series. You can find us on YouTube or CivilWarDigitalDigest.com. And our goal is uh, we do short episodes anywhere from eight to 20 minutes, depending on, uh, you know, what we're, our topic is, how much we have to say, and how long I ramble. Um, <laughs> I, I, you know, Will's a little bit more pithy than me on getting stuff across, I, you know. But, our, you know, we cover a variety of topics. Will and I both come from reenacting, so that's a, a big base of it. You know, some of it's how-to, some of it's recipes from the war. Uh, we cover civilian topics, military topics, you know, uh, 
I really try hard that uh, we get a good mix of Confederate and U.S. topics. Uh, it's not always as easy to get Confederate topics, but we, we try. Um, we do biographies. We do things like, um, you know, we'll, we do out of the vault, which is where we go to museums and allow them to bring objects that they don't normally display out. Uh, yesterday, just yesterday, we were at Hayes Presidential Center in Ohio, Rutherford B. Hayes. And one of the really cool things is they pulled out this ballot box from 1863 that the 23rd Ohio used to vote in the Ohio gubernatorial election. Wow. Yeah. It was just, you know, like, what does it say about us as a republic more than this was the first war where soldiers could vote in the field? And having been someone who served in the military and been able to do an absentee ballot, like, you know, I, I feel so like these guys forged the thing that, you know, we're citizen soldiers. We are still citizens and get to exercise our right under our constitution to voice our opinion. Wow. That's incredible. And yeah. uh, I know I got to catch up myself on uh, all the videos <laughs> you guys have been posting. It's really great stuff. And I encourage anybody listening to please uh, check out their YouTube channel and uh, subscribe. And, and there's a lot of great content there. Well, I appreciate and, it. Oh, no. Thank you, man. And um, I have to say, again, thank you for, for taking the time to do this. Uh, this has been a great conversation, man. Yeah. I Well, again, it's been a pleasure to be here. Any chance to talk about the 24th Michigan, you know, they're, they're such a special unit. Like, yeah, they have the notoriety, but, you know, to take the guys that have to be the new guys in the Iron Brigade and to go in as their first time standing in a battle line and trading volleys is a place like Gettysburg. And not only do they do well there, but they literally hold the record in the army for the greatest sacrifice in a day. Like, it's just, you know, it's tremendous what they did. And like, that isn't the end of their, you know, I love that they just go on to be part of the iron brigade for the rest of the war. And it's so special that they got to end the war as Lincoln's honor guard at his funeral. You know, they wanted oh, a veteran yeah. regiment to be there. And that's, that was the veteran regiment that got to be there for it. No, that's incredible. And that's fascinating. And honestly, I, I was not aware of that myself. Until you brought that up today. So that's really interesting. Wow. So, well, thanks so much, uh, Andrew. And um, I can't wait uh, to share this uh, with everyone. And, and uh, I hope everyone listens as they're making their road trips to Gettysburg. A uh, good idea to <laughs> listen among all your other favorite history podcasts on the way uh, on your road trips in the next uh, few days. And so uh, wow. So thank you for taking time to do this and honoring and remembering Gettysburg and the men who fought there. Um, something I'm very passionate about. So this was a joy for me uh, to be part of tonight. So thanks so much, Andrew. Oh, thank you for having me. And I encourage everyone, when you go to Gettysburg, stop by the 24th Monument and say hi to the boys. Amen. That's right. And go check out their little uh, monument over on Culp's Hill or uh, Stevens Knoll over there. It's worth a, it's worth a look too, to see the rifle pits. Absolutely. All righty, sir. Well, thanks so much. And um, I look forward to having a conversation with you again sometime. Absolutely. Same here.